Welcome to the podcast of Destiny Community Church. Well, this is the fourth and final week of our series, Living Room. And this series is, is recognizing the need that we have to create space in our lives for God to rule and reign in every aspect of our lives. And, and it's challenging for us. It's a very challenging series. And, and, and this first week, the first week, we talked about making space, making room for God in our occupations. The second week was about making room for God in our finances. The third week was about making room for, for God in our homes. And today, as we close this thing out, we're going to talk about making room for God in our hearts. And this will be the most challenging day for you, I promise. I promise you. Before you walk out of this room today, you will be challenged. I must admit that I tried to go a different direction today, and the more that I resisted, the more God persisted. You ever had that happen in your life? You ever tried to, to say, oh, that's not God, that's not God, God, just, and, and God keeps on pushing you and pushing you. And so I had a completely different direction that I was going until three days ago. Now, in all fairness, God had been dealing with me on this for about two weeks. But about three days ago, I finally caved in and said, okay, God, I've got to get some sleep. And unless I, I, I listen to you and to your heart right now and what you're trying to do through me, I may not ever sleep again. So, um, so you, you, you have to hear me. And, and, and church, let me just be very honest with you right now. I am in the hardest season of my life as it comes to ministry. It is impossible for pastors right now to please everyone. I take comfort that Jesus didn't please everyone. And he had many of his followers that deserted him because of what was referred to as the hard teaching that he was teaching. And I'm in the, in the middle of, I, 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 actually I hope it's not the middle, I hope we're towards the end of it, but, but this has been the hardest season of ministry for me. At a time when our church is running about 62% in attendance of what we were pre-coronavirus. So we're running about 62% in attendance of what we were pre-coronavirus. At a time that that's happening, you would think that I would shy away from the subject that we're going to talk about today. Which, by the way, um, 62% is way above the national average of less than 50%. And I talk with pastors every week and church attendance is, is at about 50% or less of what it was pre-coronavirus. So for us being at 62%, it's pretty good. But it's, it's, it's tough for me as a pastor because I know that we have some people that were active uh, uh, attendees and active members of our church that they have not even seen this building yet. They haven't even been here. And, and for some of them, their concerns are coronavirus, and, and, and they don't want to be here. There's, there's some people that said they're not coming because of some of the measures that we've put in place, and it offended them. And I'll, I'll stand by what I've said and, and even had to answer an email this week. Um, I, I will do what is necessary to make everyone feel comfortable to attend. I will put my personal thoughts aside so that people feel safe so that I can reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, 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 you know, it's, it's one of those things, church, I don't need validation on that. I've been seeking God, 
and I'm, I'm doing my best. It's a tough season. But because of that, you would think that, that I would shy away from this and that I would not have this conversation today. But what God is doing here at DCC is nothing short of amazing. Our worship right now, I've never experienced it quite like it is right now at DCC. The freedom. Now that probably has a lot to do with we don't have to set up and tear down equipment. I understand that. But I see people on their knees seeking God. I see this band. that They've worked hard to usher us into the presence of the Lord. There's so many new faces. One of the reasons why we're probably running above the national average in attendance compared to pre-coronavirus is, is because of so many new faces, so many new people that have, have started coming to our church, church since we've opened the doors to this facility. And man, it's such a great time for you to jump in and jump on board. And, and not just that, but people wanting to get on board. We're going to be receiving covenant members in our second service today. And, and, and it's just amazing at what God is doing here in our church. The kingdom of God is still advancing in the middle of a national crisis. In the middle of a worldwide crisis, the kingdom of God is still advancing. And that gives this pastor some hope. But when God called me to pastor, he called me to lead his sheep. And I understand that I will spend my entire ministry, and I've said this many times, but I will spend my entire ministry preparing the bride of Christ for another man. And I'm perfectly fine with that. But it's my job as the shepherd of this flock to lead these sheep through troubled times and dangerous atmospheres like a good shepherd does. It's my job to preach the truth and love in order to see us maturing Christ, including myself. And this does not always make me popular. And today is not going to make me popular. There's no doubt that there's some of you in the room that you're going to wish that you would not have come here today. By the time that I'm done today, by the time this service is finished, depending on where your heart is at, you're not going to like the direction that this goes and I need you to understand that today is designed to be intentionally uncomfortable. So if you're uncomfortable, know the person sitting next to you is uncomfortable and know that uh, it, it is designed that way. I believe God had us design it that way. And so today is intentionally uncomfortable. And the problem with too many churches in America right now is that they try and create comfort and therefore there's no atmosphere for change because you cannot change when you're comfortable. Amen. And so today God's going to challenge us for change. Today, I want to talk about creating space in your heart for God. Creating space in my heart for God. And I want to explain this to you because I think a lot of us believe that we have space in our hearts for God. And we don't realize what society is doing to us because our hearts and our minds are so full and they're crowded with social media and uh, mainstream media and opinions that have been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And we're so inundated with all of this information and all of these opinions and all of this stuff. And, and for most of us that are over the age of 40, so I'm putting myself in this category, 
For most of us that are over the age of 40, our minds are made up and our worldview is determined. And if we're not careful, we'll prove the phrase, it's hard to teach an old dog new tricks. Because our mindset is so locked in and we think that we've got it figured out. But it, it's a heart issue and, and often our hearts are hardened to change. I can tell you this, my heart on some issues is hardened to change. And as a believer in Christ, as a spirit-filled believer in Christ, it is my job to allow the Holy Spirit to begin to soften my heart so that change can come about inside of me. But, but today, God is calling us to make room in our hearts for him. He wants to rule and reign in our hearts. Listen to this, Proverbs 4 and 23. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything that you do flows from it, from, from right here. That means everything that, that we think, it comes from here. Everything that we say, it comes from here. Everything that we don't say, it comes from right here. It all flows from the heart. Listen to Luke 6 and 45. Jesus said, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his treasure, evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of what? The heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what's going on right here? I'm telling you, you can find a, 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 a direct connection with this and this. Amen. I'm challenging you right now, church. It's about to get deep. Get this right before we go any farther. Today, the heat is about to be turned up. And when it is, you can choose to seek God for answers, real godly answers, and not, not the opinion of, of, of the world around you. You can either seek God for his answers, or you can walk out of these doors offended today. And I'm praying, and I've been praying all week, that you would just let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. I, I want to stress this to you, so I want everyone in the room to hear me. I'm not here to change minds necessarily. If that's a byproduct of this conversation today, then, then so be it. But that's not my goal in this conversation. I'm not here to change minds. The main goal for today is, is to help us to learn to process better, to open dialogue, to have uncomfortable conversations with people that we love. Forget about what you've said. I want you to forget about what you've posted don't worry about explaining this to someone that's heard or read you. Don't worry about the friend that came to church with you today and you're like, why did I invite them today? Why are they here today when pastor has lost his mind? <laughs> Don't worry about a family member's opinion and what they're gonna think about you. What I'm asking you to do right now is to listen to what's about to happen for yourself and what God wants to do in and through your life. When the heat is turned up, the impurities rise to the surface. This happens in my life often. When the heat is turned up, the impurities rise to the surface, and once those impurities surface, you can either deal with them or they're going to deal with you. You can either deal with them or they're going to, to shape your family and your descendants for years and years to come, and dealing with them will create space for God to rule and reign in your heart. That's what Sabbath is about. It's about allowing God to set up his kingdom 
to rule and reign in a moment of peace. And if you look at society right now, it's anything but Shabbat. It is not peaceful. It's not. And so today's conversation will help us tackle the issue, the issue of racism in America. Someone right now is thinking that there's no room in the church to deal with this social issue. But I need you to understand that I look at this like I look at my politics. There may be a separation of church and state, but there is no separation at all between politics and my faith. Because my faith is my worldview, therefore it dictates my politics. And, and when it comes to social issues, there is no separation of this matter and my faith. As a matter of fact, this matter is driven by my faith. And the sad thing about it is that there was a time in America that in the name of religion, in the name of Christianity, it was driven in one direction that was so far away from God that now we're still trying to pay the price to get this thing corrected. That offended some of you right there. Why wouldn't we deal with this? Listen close to me. Why wouldn't we deal with this? Jesus did. And it's one of the things that made him unpopular. And I've been pretty convicted lately that my church is probably bigger than his church was. Probably not after today, but we'll see. In Luke chapter 10, a religious leader asked Jesus, he said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And he was asking him this, not out of sincerity. It, it was an opportunity to trap Jesus. What do I have to do to inherit this eternal life that you're talking about? And Jesus answered him. He said, what does the law say about it? And, and the answer, it actually takes the Ten Commandments and it condenses them down to two. The first one being, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Don't miss that. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, and your mind. And he said the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Then in an effort to justify his limited circle of friends that look like him, act like him, and believe like him, this guy said, and who is my neighbor? I can see him asking Jesus that. Man, if I'd have been standing there, I'd probably slap the mess out of him. But that's not right either, is it? And who is my neighbor? And Jesus responds to him with this parable. Listen to what he says. Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You hear, hear that? So the religious leader, the pastor, it's the priest. The pastor avoids this man, wants nothing to do with him, and passes by and leaves him on the side of the road half dead. Verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. Now understand, a Levite, was, was, they were the ones that were serving in the church. Okay, they're making sure that, that the temple is prepared. It's ready. They're passing out the bulletins. They're taking up the offering. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his, on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now to most of you, this, this may not seem like a lesson on racism, but you have to understand how much the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. It, Samaritans were half Jews. And, and, and they were looked down upon. Jew, Jewish people, Jesus' people, they looked down upon the Samaritans because their bloodline was not pure. To be honest with you, they looked at them like they were mutts. That's how they viewed them. And it's so easy to, 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 to label someone because of their race and the color of their skin. And you label them and you dehumanize them in the process. And you, you, you stop realizing that there's a person in there that God loves and God cares about. Amen. I knew it was going to be quiet. That's all right. The racial tension between these two groups of people was extremely high, and Jesus had the nerve to call them his neighbor. And who are my neighbors? Well, it's the people that live over there that you don't associate with because they don't look like you, act like you, and believe like you. This was a challenging message for all who were listening. And this would force them to deal with their prejudices and, and their racism. And today, I want to do the same. So to help me deal with this very difficult topic today, I've asked a couple in our church that I believe they've earned the right to speak to this matter more than anybody else. I actually thought about bringing in someone else that's not associated with our church but as I prayed about it, God said, no, I want you to invite BJ and Tequila Vaden up on stage and have this conversation with them. And so today we're going to have a conversation and I'm inviting you in to listen to our conversation. Would you welcome the Vadens? Forget social distancing, man. <laughs> I need this. <laughs> Living room. <laughs> Let me begin by saying thank you. Relax. Sit back. Relax. We're in our living room. This is a church family. Amen. I said this is our church family, amen? Amen. amen. BJ, I've asked you to pray for us to get us started. Will you do that for us right now? God, thank you so much for your presence here, God. And we pray that everything that you want shared today, that it will be shared. And just as we just sang, Father, God, I thank you that strongholds will be broken today. God, thank you that Chains will fall today, and we give you the glory for it and the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 BJ, if I remember correctly, I first met you on the basketball court. There was a group, a group of guys that were playing at Oakview Middle School 
at the gymnasium there, and you were on the outside courts, I believe. And um, I love your personality because you you walked up and um, and just wanted to join right in. And we had strict instructions from the principal at the time not to open it up to anybody outside of our church um, for insurance purposes and liability purposes. But um, but well, somebody actually disobeyed you because they invited me in. That's why I came in. <laughs> well. It's that smile and that baritone voice, man. How, how could you resist that, right? What do you mean? <laughs> and Tequila, Tequila, one of, one of the few people on this planet that I can talk about the great TV show Greenleaf with. Yes. Are you caught up? No. No? Oh. I always wait for it to hit Netflix so I can binge watch it. Oh, it's good. It's good. The, <laughs> Is it good? This, this the, the last season? The Bishop and First Lady, I am impressed right <sighs> I now. I can't wait. I can't uh, wait. Anybody watch Greenhouse and... and Greenfield. Greenfield. Uh, Greenleaf. Greenleaf. <laughs> Greenleaf. Anybody watch Greenleaf? Raise your hand. All right. Yeah. Sonia, you caught up? I uh, am. We got to talk. We got to talk. These... I actually t uh, sent a message to you two last season. I was like, where are my girls at? Where my <laughs> um, tequila, when did you guys first attend DCC? Uh, the first time we came was um, Mother's Day 2016. And uh, we were just, it was, we didn't know anything really about the church, but we really uh, felt like we wanted to visit. This was the only church we really wanted to visit. Um, nearby, so we, you know, came on through, brought the kids, and that was the first time we ever came. I came back by myself the following Wednesday. Nobody came with me. They just left me out there by myself. But then the following Wednesday, the whole family came, and I think I came one more time after that before we finally made the decision to come here and make this our church home, which was at the beginning of July. <laughs> at beginning of July 2016, so happy anniversary of attending DCC to you guys. Four years now. Four yes, years. Four years. Yeah. It's gone by fast. Yeah. It has. It has. But in the same sense, I feel like I've known you guys forever. Um, tell, tell me about your children. Uh, we have Trey. He's uh, 20. And he is, right now he's in uh, Virginia. He's in the Air Force. Uh, he left right after he graduated. I mean, he graduated one day, and it felt like the next day he left, and he's been gone ever since. Um, but he's doing really well. Uh, he just ended his time in quarantine. He had to be quarantined when he traveled. Uh, so he just finished quarantine. And then we have Isaiah. He's 18, and he's sitting over here. He uh, just graduated during the quarantine. So <laughs> he had, we had a nice drive-by graduation for yes. him. It was very interesting. And then we have Miss Zoe. She's uh, 10, almost 11. And I don't know why she's acting shy. <laughs> we know you're not. We know you're not shy. Uh, <laughs> she is uh, going into the sixth grade uh, this year, probably online. <laughs> Those are the kids. <clears throat> Beautiful family. And we thank you guys for allowing us the opportunity to, to love your kids. And, um, and we do. We love all of them, even Isaiah. Um, you're one of the, the greatest baristas I know, man. In this season of life, um, I've tried my best to push the idea of sitting down and having a conversation with someone of a different race to better understand their thoughts and feelings because I think we're throwing a lot of blanket statements out there without ever seeing how this impacts someone that, again, 
They don't look like us. And, and I, I think it's dangerous. And so I have been consistently, in church you know this, I've been consistently saying have conversations. Have, it's important to have these conversations for, for two ways. One, so I can hear their heart and also so that they can hear my heart. Because there's some concerns that I have too as a white man in America that I think it's important that someone hear me on this. And, and so I, I've just been pushing, let's, let's have conversations and, and that's what today is really about. And yesterday we were able to meet right here. We came up here and sat down on stage and we had a conversation and um, I wanted to just let them know and let them in on that conversation. And, and I, wanna, I wanna tell the church today, um, although there is so much that I know that we do agree on, um, we may not see eye to eye on every issue. And as I've, I've said beforehand in our prep time, I said, it's okay. It's okay if we don't see eye to eye on everything. By example, today, I want to show people how communication is the road to healing. And it's important because it's hard for me just to throw a blanket statement out there knowing how it, it may affect you and, and vice versa. And so, BJ, one of the things that I've been impressed with throughout this is that you have invited friends, people that you consider friends. You've invited them to have conversations um, with you to help them better understand where your heart is at and what's going on. Um, this is a question for both of you. Tell me about your earliest memory of racism that you encountered. For me, it happened when I was around seven or eight years old. Uh, my family, we had moved from a predominantly black neighborhood to a predominantly white neighborhood. There was still a significant amount of blacks uh, in that neighborhood. And there was one day, it was me and uh, three other boys. One was a real good friend of mine who was black and two other white kids who, as I can, if I can remember, we were, I guess, friends. I remember them being at my birthday party, but we all played together. And uh, it was two white kids who were brothers. And one of the white kids, he was talking to me about how white people are better than black people. It was like at seven years old, he's trying to explain to me and help me understand that white people are superior to black people. And I just hauled off and hit him. And that was the first fist fight. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, forgot. I thought it was just us, I forgot. That there was a, no. So that was the first fist fight that I'd ever been in in my life. It was over some racist comments. And there's something about when you experience something for the first time whatever that may be, it, it can leave a lasting impression on you and it can actually plant seeds. And as I look back on my life, that incident, it did, it planted a seed in me that grew into certain prejudices that I had as I got older. Wow. But that was the, the first incident that I can remember as far as racism. For myself, um, it wasn't until I was in high school, just starting high school, um, I was raised in San Antonio. So in San Antonio, the demographic is its very diverse there. Um, <clears throat> but at this time, I was in, living in New Jersey, and it was a very small town in New Jersey. And I remember walking down the hall, and, uh, you know, and I didn't, I never had any problem. Like I said, I've never had any problems before. When I was a little girl, my best friend was white. Like, we were just, I mean, we were very, very close. That was my best, best friend. And so I didn't have any problems, and I've never saw any different, like it just wasn't a big deal for me. But when I was in the 10th grade, I remember walking down the hall and somebody uh, yelled out the N-word. And 
just like he said, it left, that was being my first experience, it left a very lasting impression because at the time it uh, brought forth a lot of fear because you, we know what our history looks like. So whenever we would hear that word, it always came behind, uh, before uh, a lot of violence, so lynchings and beatings and such. And so it made me fearful um, in that place. There weren't a lot of black people there. So, it, so the black people that were there, we kind of hung together a lot because we were all we had, <laughs> this little handful. But it was fear, but it, it, it did uh, spark fear in me. And then going forward, um, it, it did make a mark in my life that created that, is, is somebody about to say that to me? Um, if, I'm in a, if I would be in a place where I was uh, like the only black person there. Hmm. BJ, uh, you shared with me the difficult conversation that you had to have with your sons. Do you mind sharing that? No, there's actually a couple. Uh, there's one that came to mind after we talked. Um, so there was one conversation I had to have with them involved some of their white friends that would make comments from time to time. They would say something basically like, you don't act black. And I would talk to my sons about what does that, what are they trying to say? What do they mean by that? And a lot of times, or most of the time, what they meant by it was that my sons didn't act like maybe certain rappers that they saw on TV or the internet, or they didn't act like uh, people that they saw who were from the hood or from the ghetto and things like that. And so I talked to my sons about, instead of, I know you can be angry about it, you can be annoyed or upset about it, but instead try to use this as a teaching moment and try to educate them that black people are more than that, that black people, that we can be scientists, that we can be doctors or lawyers or presidents, and that uh, we come from royalty in Africa. And so uh, using that as an opportunity to try to help them understand that we're more than what uh, stereotype they may associate with being a black person, uh, because they would say things like, you know your dad? Like your dad actually lives there? or you know, all kinds of things like that. So just using it as an opportunity, teaching moment. So that was one. Uh, another uh, harder conversation probably that I've had to have with them. And, and when we were talking, you know, you were saying difficult conversations and things like that. And, and to me and to a lot of black people, it's just a way of life. You know, talking like I had to talk to them about how to conduct themselves if they're stopped by police officers. And I want to be very clear that I stand with the blue as well as the black. And we can talk about that more, too. But uh, I totally believe that, for the most part, that police officers are good people, that they're simply trying to do their job as far as protecting and serving. But when you're stopped by the police, if you're a young black male stopped by the police, you don't know which one you're going to get. If you're going to get the good or that small percentage that's the bad apple. So I've had to talk to them about uh, making sure that you don't appear hostile in any way, that you follow their instructions exactly, that you're very polite, uh, you know, showing your hands and not making sudden movements. I've had to instruct them, like, in steps, like, how to conduct themselves in that situation. And um, so that was, that was something that I had to talk to them about because, and not just because of something that I read somewhere, but something out of my own personal experience. And so uh, those are probably two of the conversations that come to mind when it comes to having to talk with my kids. When you were telling me that 
first thing that popped in my head, the, the entire conversation that we were having about that was that I've never had to have that conversation with my son. I just never have. And um, I appreciate your wisdom there. I appreciate what you just said about, you know, I do back the blue, you know, and recognizing that they're, they're a statement that I've made and, and I've made it to some of our law enforcement here at DCC that, you know, one bad apple doesn't spoil the whole bunch. And to recognize that, I, I think, is big. And, and, and it's one of those difficult areas for me to navigate um, in this social climate is the subject of black lives versus blue lives, you know, our, our law enforcement. And it seems as though sometimes, and I know I'm not by myself, I know that there's some of you in the room that you feel this way too, um, it seems as though sometimes I feel like I'm being asked to choose one over the other. And that if I support the blue, then I'm going against my black friends. And if I support uh, black lives in any way, shape or form, that I'm going against law enforcement. And it, it, is, it is one of those things right now that I have to admit, it is hard for me to navigate through right now. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best. I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. But my heart beats for black and blue. And I'm just letting you in on, on my side of it, man, is that I'm trying. I'm trying to navigate all that and figure all that out. And um, you, you addressed that, BJ, of, of you know, your thoughts on that. And, and I appreciate that, that you, you, know, you, you mentioned to me uh, yesterday, you're like, man, I'm not, I'm not behind defunding the police. You know, y'all were, were very adamant on that conversation. I appreciate you saying that because I know there's many of us here that that, that is a concern for us. You know, there's a, a movement with that. Um, what is the answer for the few bad apples? What, what, what needs to happen with that? I think for me, a lot of it has to do with more accountability. Um, on one side, as far as accountability, as far as if a police officer is committing a crime, whatever that crime may be, that they are held accountable for that and that there are real consequences for that. I think part of the frustration, particularly with a lot of black people, is that we've seen, like literally up close, in person, seen certain, that small percentage of police officers, the bad apples, committing crimes against us or somebody else, and uh, they get a slap on the wrist as a result, or they're found not guilty, or they're on a paid leave, or something like that. So accountability as far as real consequences for if they do commit uh, some kind of crime against someone. Uh, and then also with the accountability when it comes to the training that they receive, and I know they receive a lot of training and education and things like that, but I guess accountability as far as before they are released to the streets that it's ensured that this person is ready, that they're qualified to be able to carry out their job in a professional and an ethical manner. Mm. So for me, accountability I think plays a big part in, in trying to, to resolve and fix that. I've had some conversations with some of my law enforcement friends, and um, many of them have, have the same thought. I mean, they, they are, are just like, man, this is training. You know, we, we've got to go through the right training. And, and these are, are men and women that they, they are ethical. I mean, they, they got a good heart. And, and um, you yeah. know, so 
Um, have either of you ever had any of your own experiences where you felt threatened in any way by law enforcement? And I know this is sensitive. I know it is, but but this is a this is a living room conversation. For me, I want to start off by saying that most of my experiences with law enforcement have not been necessarily negative. If I've had interaction with the police as far as being stopped, it was because of something I did wrong. And even in those situations, there have been times where I was in the wrong and they still cut me some slack. Uh, there was one time I was thinking of where I was driving and Isaiah was with me, Isaiah and Trey were with me and they were much younger. So I don't know if he remembers this, but I was driving in a 40 uh, speed zone and I was doing at least 50, 55, maybe 60. <laughs> I'm not saying if I was saved or not at the time when that happened. So don't judge me. The truth me. will set you free. I know okay. it. I know it. I know it. But uh, the police officer stopped me and, and he told me, he was like, if I give you a ticket for what speed you were doing, it's going to be hundreds mm. of dollars. And instead, and I'm not saying where this happened, so I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble, but instead he gave me a ticket for doing 49 and a 40. So the ticket was much less. You know, uh, there was another situation where I got stopped and the light in the back of my car, the light where the license plate is, was out. And so he stopped me and he had me getting out the car, so I'm on the side of the road and lights are flashing and it's in a, a heavy traffic area, so everybody seemed standing outside for a, a bad light. Um, but in the midst of that, we started talking with each other, and long story so short, we started actually talking about the Lord, and he wanted to accept Jesus into his life, so wow. I was able to pray with him, and he got <laughs> born again on the side of the road. So a lot of my, a lot of, most of my interactions with the police as far as things like that have not been as negative, but I have had situations like that. Um, I think the first one I had was where I was driving, uh, I was early 20s, and I'm driving a car that it wasn't, and it wasn't a high-end car, it wasn't an expensive car, it wasn't a fancy car, it was, it was just a nice car. And a police officer stopped me, pulled me over, was running my license, and I don't remember everything that was said, it was so long ago, but I remember feeling, when he left, I remember having the feeling of, he just stopped me because I'm a young black male in a nice car. Because I do remember him saying that I stopped you because you look like somebody I was looking for. And so that was probably the first time that I had that kind of situation happen. Um, so, yeah. Mm. I've, I've, I've had, I'm like him. I haven't really had a lot of uh, run-ins with the police. I mean, I've never been arrested. Praise God. Uh, <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> they just never got caught. <laughs> They never caught me. But uh, I remember one time uh, we knew that we had a, one of our headlights was out. Uh, it was on a Friday and I pretty, I, I know that we had an appointment to go get it fixed like over the weekend or so. And I was nervous, so nervous to have to drive it at nighttime. But at the time that was the only car we had and BJ was working way across town at Job Corps. And I had to, and he of course got off work at like, you know, 11 o'clock or whatever at night. So me and Zoe packed up and, you know, went to go get BJ. And he's, of course, so of course he's exhausted. So he's, like, in the front seat and he's laid back because he's asleep. And um, as soon as I got to, uh, to Jonesville good, it was like lights. I said, darn it, they got me. They got me. 
And so I pulled in, and all of a sudden, it was like two cop cars. So it was, it was like a scene out of cops. You know, so all of a sudden, I'm, I'm like surrounded. It's like two cars, and I'm like, wow, like all this pro light. <laughs> so I, uh, I got out, <clears throat> or I pulled over, and I was like, you know, you know your light is out? I said, yes, sir. And I started talking to him and, you know, letting him know what was going on. And he said, okay, well, I need to run your license. And so hands up. I'm like, okay, I'm just, I need to reach into my purse, and I'm, I'm like making sure that I'm having dialogue and letting him know everything that I'm doing, and he acknowledged the, what I did and was like, thank you for doing that. Like, thank you for letting me know what you're doing, and in the end, and it was so funny because it was like, they ran my plates wrong, and they were like, this is not like a red, you know, Ford, whatever. I'm like, no, <laughs> this is not. And so he's, and so, uh, and now we're getting nervous. <laughs> okay, now I'm getting a little nervous. Like, why are my tags not running correctly? He's like, don't worry about it. I'm going to just call in and just, you know, I'll just do it this way. And in the end, you know, he was very friendly. He gave, you know, Zoe a little sticker, you know, just to show, like, I'm nice. You know, it's good. And it ended up being, you know, not a bad situation, but it was still scary because, again, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in this car, and then, you know, BJ, he's just looking like, I don't know what, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he, you know, he's just looking like he's passed out drunk somewhere, but he's nice. <laughs> he just got off work. And uh, so it just, it looked, it, I could tell where it would, it could have looked a little bit suspicious, um, but it turned out, you know, to be, to, to move very nicely. But I know it was because I was very careful and cautious mm -hmm. in how I responded. And the thing I appreciate about you too, there's so much wisdom in what you're saying right now. And, and that's why these conversations are important. Acknowledging that there's an issue, but also giving credit where credit is due. And I thank you too for that. Um, I think more conversations like this, I, I think we could see the heart behind that. Um, I'm a white man, if you didn't know that. I am a white man and I have no idea what it's like to be a black man in America. Um, BJ, your experience matters to me. Explain to me what life is like for a black man in America. For me and many black people that I know, it's like when you leave your house, your antennas are up and there is an awareness that you have especially when you're in an environment where you are the minority or like the only one, the only black person around. And so you have to be cautious of certain things that you do. So say for example, if I'm exercising in my neighborhood and I'm jogging, I'm thinking about things like making sure that I don't look like I'm chasing somebody or that I don't look like I'm running from the scene of a crime. If I'm in a convenience store, I'm thinking about, okay, I have to be okay with the fact that the cashier is looking at me more than they're looking at the white customer in the other aisle. I have to, there are certain things I do just out of instinct, and it might just be from past experiences, but if, I pass, if I'm driving and I pass by a cop car, then automatically I look in my rearview mirror to see if they're going to start following me. So there's, there's a certain awareness, and it's not like, we walk around tensed up waiting for something to pop off. But there's just an awareness that we have and it's like chess where you're thinking ahead, you're thinking two or three steps ahead. Uh, even last week, we were in Cedar Key last week uh, vacationing and uh, Tequila was taking a nap and I was out, there was a park near where we were staying. 
and there was a little white girl. She was no more than five years old. She was on a jungle gym, and she was like, hey, and she was calling for me, and she said, can you help me down? And uh, she, there was like a rope that she was trying to climb down. I don't know if I even told you that. Okay. And, um, you know, with the social distancing and things like that, I didn't want her mom seeing a big black dude grabbing her child uh, in the midst of it. But even if there was no social distancing, I'm still thinking of that. I'm still thinking of if her mom sees, because that was the first question I asked was, where's your mom? And she didn't know. But if her mom saw a big, tall black dude grabbing her child, what would happen from that? So I, like, I have to be cognizant of that kind yeah. of thing. So there's that. Then you compound that with seeing things like black people in their own home being murdered by police officers, by certain police officers, whether it's Botham John, whether it's Breonna Taylor. I mean, they're in their own home and being killed. So you see things like that. And then to compound that, you have, well, like in uh, things that I've experienced recently where I've had white people that I know, whether it's people that I work with or just people I know or even friends who have said certain things or posted certain things that start to raise question marks in my head as far as where do you stand? Like, where do you stand as far as how you see me? Um, so when you compound all those things, and these are things that a black person has to deal with every day. And for some people that may be hard, but for a lot of black people, it's just a way of life. It's, not, it's like, it is what it is, and it's, some, it's just something you, you deal with and keep it moving. So there were actually, I got to a point where some negative emotions started rising up within me, and uh, I had to deal with that. But those are, those are certain things that, that a lot of black people, and I'm, I'm speaking generally, I'm not saying every single black person deals with, with that kind of thing, but uh, in general, those are the kinds of things that's, that's on our mind every day. The only time in my life, and I shared this with you, the only time in my life that I've ever felt uncomfortable because of my race, um, it, was a, it was a situation in Ecuador where me and the missionary and my brother we, we went to northern Ecuador, and we were near the border of Colombia in a little town. And at that time, there were Colombians, uh, guerrillas, that with, you know, automatic uh, machine guns that were uh, capturing Americans, specifically white Americans, and holding them for ransom. And we were in this little little village, and I go to get out of the car, and the missionary looks at me, and I'm, I'm taller than this particular brother, much taller, and he says, you're a six foot two white man, you're not getting out here. And I looked at him, I said, you're, you're white. And he said, I'm dark skin, I'm short. Your brother's dark skin, he's short, but this is dangerous for you. And that is the only time in my life, uh, I mean, BJ, you know me, man. I mean, I was the only white kid on the basketball team for you know, at least one of the two years that I played. And I've never been uncomfortable around black people. I'm probably too comfortable. I've told you this before. I'm probably too comfortable at times. Um, but that's the only time in my life in, in Ecuador in that moment where I can relate that because of my skin color that I felt uncomfortable. Now, I'm going to transition, and, and I need everybody in the room to listen close to, to how I present this because this is touchy right here. And um, you and I both agree that the media is fueling the fire. We know that. 
We know that. They're, they're, they're trying their best to even bring more division and make it to where we won't have these conversations. And um, I watched this play out this week, and I need everybody to listen closely. Before you tune me out, listen to the whole thing that I'm saying, okay? I watched this played out this week with headlines. Um, the Yankees and the Nationals on Friday played uh, the, uh, the baseball game, and both teams took a knee. Listen to me. They took a knee before the national anthem, and then they stood during the national anthem. And, and as I've said, I don't know if this will stick. I don't know if this is, is the new thing or, or what. Um, but the headlines were, were very misleading, at least at first, and it caused quite a social media frenzy. And then I know some of us, we even got caught up in that. Uh, no less than 100 different people that I saw post about this. Um, and, and most of them didn't, didn't read the article, and the headlines was just so misleading. And it's no secret that I'm a very patriotic person. If you know me, you know that I'm an extremely patriotic person. My wife and kids will tell you that when we're at home and we are, are watching a sporting event on TV or anything on TV and the national anthem comes on in my house, you stop. You stop banging pots and pans in the kitchen. If you're walking through the hallway, you stop. You look at the TV until the national anthem is over. And then you go on about your business. And it's just, it's just patriotism. For me, it's, it's how I was raised, and, and I'm just going to respect the flag, and I'm going to respect the national anthem. And so, um, BJ, your dad served in the Army. Tequila, your dad served in the Army. Your oldest son, Trey, is right now serving our country in the Air Force. And out of respect for, for men and women who have served, I have never been crazy. And that's, so this shows you how honest this conversation is today, okay? We're laying it out there. I've never been crazy about anyone kneeling during the national anthem, although it did gather attention, and I, I guess that's, that's why it was done. And this is a personal conviction for me, so it's been a hard one. It's been hard for me to process all of this. But Friday, before this baseball game, both teams knelt before the national anthem, and then they stood during the national anthem, and to me, this was a win. I might be all by myself here. I choose to pick my battles. And for that, man, my heart leaped within me when I read the article because I thought to myself, there was a, there was a, a heart's cry for respect for the national anthem and someone listened. And so they changed it up and said, we'll kneel before. And so the two organizations said, we'll kneel before in, in our support of a movement but then out of respect, we'll stand for the national anthem. And, and I just felt like, man, this, there was unity for a cause. There was respect for the anthem. And in my mind, and, and maybe, and, and listen, if you disagree with me, you set up a time to come talk with me. You, th this is what I'm trying to do today is to teach us. Jesus said, if you have ought against your brother, you go to them. Amen. We're playing this out right now for you. I'm wanting you to see this by example. And, and so my door is open. You can set up a time. You can come talk with me. But in my mind, this was a win-win. And, and the media is so polarizing in this. And, and, and listen to me. Let, me. let me make one more soapbox statement here. And before you get upset about someone kneeling before the national anthem, because that became the next issue, um, we don't get upset when someone kneels before the Queen of England when they're being knighted. 
Sir Elton John, Sir Paul McCartney, Sir Sean Connery. We don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem when your future husband knelt before you or you knelt before your, your future wife and, and giving them a ring. Nobody here is praying to a false god. And I saw Friday as just, of just this moment of, oh, but both sides are hearing each other. And there's something that's happening with that. I have to believe that that's the birth of a revival. Prepare your hearts, church. Hear me out. Since the phrase Black Lives Matter originated in, in 2013 with the acquittal of the man who killed um, Trayvon Martin, I've never had a problem with the phrase. Hear me out. Hear me out. I've never had a problem with the phrase Black Lives Matter. Tequila, you and I joked about this. We can save the wells and we can name it. We can save the trees and we can name it. But all of a sudden we put a color on it and everybody loses their mind. However, I'm, I'm saying what's on some of your hearts right now. However, there's an organization associated with the phrase that it appears to be very dangerous. And there are people that get upset when you say all lives matter, and then there's the flip side of people who get upset when you say black lives matter. So I determined that I'm just going to cram the two phrases together, and I'm just going to start saying all black lives matter. That way I'm not associated with an organization that I'm not, I'm not sure of where they're at and what's going on, but, but the statement still stays the same because it, it does matter. And um, BJ, I want you to help me make sense. You said something to me that man is just burning in my heart. Help me make sense of why you feel that the message is important. Yeah, if you were to ask me if I support the organization, whether it's financially or if I'm looking to get involved with the organization, I would tell you honestly, no. Um, just like any large, any large organization, there's going to be flaws in it and things that aren't quite right. But as far as that statement itself of Black Lives Matter, I do stand by that. And here's one reason why I saw this. I saw something that really hit home for me and helped me to get some clarity on it. Uh, if you look in Luke 15 where Jesus talks about, he gives the parable about a shepherd that has 100 sheep and one of the sheep goes astray. And the shepherd goes and leaves the 99 to go after the one. Well, someone could look at that and say, well, is that one more important than the 99? Because all sheep matter. So why are you going after the one instead of caring for, having, showing love for all of them? And you're absolutely right. All the sheep do matter. That's absolutely right. But all the sheep aren't in danger. Mm. That one is. So when it comes to, so when it comes to that statement of all lives matter, you're absolutely right. All lives do matter, but all lives are not in danger right now. The black lives are. And so that's one reason why personally, as far as the organization, that's something different. But as far as that statement, I do stand by that.
So you wouldn't have a problem with anybody cramming the two together and saying all black lives matter? I wouldn't have a problem with it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead and do your hashtag. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you've already talked to me about how this has impacted you personally in, in, in a negative way. And, um, but there's been some positive out of it, too. Talk to me about that. For me, as far as overcoming those negative emotions that I mentioned earlier that was rising up in me, one thing that helped me to overcome that was to have conversations with those people. If I saw that they were saying something or posting something that was questionable, I'll admit, it did hurt. Um, I mean, if it's some random person who I don't know saying that kind of thing, to me, that's water off a duck's back. But if it's somebody that I know, and especially if it's somebody that I consider a friend, and I don't use that word friend loosely, because everybody on Facebook is not your friend. <laughs> but if it's somebody I consider a friend, then I was calling, I was texting like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this, because what I would love to have happened is if you feel a certain way, then you could talk to me about it and ask like my perspective on it, because right now you're just, flowing and saying things based off of your perspective without getting another perspective. And you're not getting the perspective of your black friend, your black brother, your black sister in Christ, who this is directly affecting. And so I would reach out to them and, and have those conversations. I'm a person who, if, if I could say enjoys confrontation, that would probably be accurate because confrontation is not a negative thing. That's right. You mentioned Matthew 18. Jesus talks about that. If you have a, an issue with, with your brother or sister, go to them directly, one-on-one, -on -one, and talk about it so that you can possibly win your brother or sister. You can possibly win them. And so the word confront, by definition, literally means a one-on-one -on -one meeting. So that can be either good or bad. It's like having a gun. A gun could be used to rob somebody's house, or a gun could be used to defend your house from getting robbed. Mm. It just depends on who has the gun. So... Uh, I would have those, those confrontations with those individuals, and pretty much all of them ended up where we had healthy dialogue. I got understanding of where they were coming from, coming from. They got understanding of where I am and my perspective, and it's actually strengthened our relationship. So that was awesome. one thing that helped me to be able to overcome those, those negative emotions that I was having. And then another thing was not focusing on the small minority of white people that I knew that was maybe saying things that were questionable to me. Uh, because, yeah, you're not asking me questions and now you're saying these things, now I have questions. Um, so it wasn't, I wasn't focusing on them necessarily, I was focusing on the white friends and the white people I knew that were reaching out to me. So focusing on the majority of those who were calling us <laughs> left and right or texting us like, hey, mm -hmm. You know, help me get more understanding. How are you all doing in the midst of all this? What can I do to help? Mm -hmm. So I was focusing more on them rather than that small minority, and that helped me to see that, you know, it's not going to be healthy for me to try to group, well, man, all white people think this way. Well, no, for the majority, they don't because I'm, I'm experiencing that. So that helped me as well. That's good. Man, it's so good. When, I, when we sat down to talk, I, I said something to you guys and I did not know how this was going to be received. And you both looked at me and said, absolutely. 
when I told you I feel like we all have a little bit of racism in us and we don't know it. And one of you looked at me and said, and us too. And it, it comes from, from culture. Um, I mean, you take, you take a, a, a black child, raise them in a white home, and they have a completely different outlook on life and vice versa. You take a white child, raise them in a black home, they have a completely different outlook on life than, than people of their own race many times. And so it, it it's all derives from, from culture. And, um, and the atmosphere that we're raised in probably. But I just, I, I just have this feeling that we all have a little bit of racism in us. But it's moments like this, like I said earlier, when the heat is turned up, that the impurities rise to the surface. And if we're not careful, we'll operate out of those impurities because those impurities are flesh. And we've got to deal with that flesh. We, we've, we've, we've got to, to allow the Holy Spirit to work on all of that before... We start speaking and posting and, and everything else that goes with that. I told you guys that, that that trip last year to Montgomery, Alabama with some Newberry citizens um, where I was in the minority on that trip that me and Mayor Marlowe uh, drove the, the buses for them to go out. And um, I walked into the museum at the Equal Justice Initiative and I was excited to see most part of it, um, but there was that one part um, that... Uh, was about institutional racism. And BJ, I told you, man, I wasn't buying it. I was like, man, that's the one part there. They should have just left that out. I'm not, I'm not in. And uh, until I got in there and I started reading articles and reading history, and I'm a history buff if you don't know that, man, I love history. And, and when I started realizing that at the moment that the 13th Amendment was adopted in 1865 and slavery was abolished, and understand this, it didn't happen overnight. It, 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 the paper was signed, but it took years. Um, it's so interesting to me that in 1866, that was in 1865, in 1866, during the Reconstruction era is when the prison work camps were formed. And now all of a sudden, and especially in the South, um, when, when plantation owners no longer had uh, slaves for free labor, and if you disagree with me on that because they had room and board, we, we can talk about that in my office, okay? They, slavery was abolished. They no longer had free labor, and so they set up prison camps and started funneling black men into the, and it changed my outlook on, on uh, institutional racism. And um, man, I'm telling you, God did a work in my heart, but what happened was there was a little bit of racism that was inside of Rocky that the heat was turned up and the impurities rose to the surface. And I stood right outside the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. And God had to do a work in this man's heart for me to accept that. Let's close this thing out. What would you say to someone that wants to understand, but they don't quite get it? One thing I think would help is to try as much as you can to put yourself in the other person's shoes. I love in Matthew where it talks about when Jesus found out that John the Baptist had been killed, had his head cut off, and of course they were cousins. And so the Bible talks about that Jesus went on a boat to get away from the crowd for a while, probably to grieve over the death of his cousin. 
And when the people found out that Jesus was leaving, they walked to where Jesus was. And it says that when Jesus saw them, when they finally showed up and Jesus saw them, that he was moved with compassion and healed their sick. And one thing that I got out of that is that Jesus, when he saw what they went through, because he traveled on a boat, they walked there. And when he saw them and what they went through, he not only had compassion, but he was moved with compassion and healing took place. And I think the more that people put themselves in the other person's shoes and they understand what these, what black brothers and black sisters are going through, the more they do that, they're not only going to have compassion, they're going to be moved with compassion. And that's when healing is going to take place in relationships. Healing can take place between races and healing can take place in this land. Oh, amen. Thank you two so much for tackling this very difficult subject with me. It took a lot of courage. Um, Thank you as well. Um, work with us. We don't understand it all. And um, we're trying to wrap our mind around all of it. And um, I appreciate the grace that, that you two have extended into so many lives already. And um, Thank you for being a part of the DCC family. I can't imagine this church without you two, without your five. Can't imagine church without Miss Zoe. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm uh, this is not catching them off guard. We're gonna do something very unconventional right now, and I want. I want everyone in the room to hear me because if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, and I'll heal their land. And man, we need a healing. You don't think the enemy is, is loving the division that is happening right now? And so I've asked you two to join me. I'm going to get in the middle of you, and we're just going to make an Oreo right here. <laughs> That's where I get too comfortable. I told you I do. I do. I need to talk to you about that. Yeah, I know. I know. Um. We're going to kneel together right here in prayer. We're kneeling in humility before a merciful God. And if we're ever going to find healing, we're going to have to humble ourselves and pray before we talk, before we post. Father, I thank you for our nation. I do. I know, Lord, that I am a blessed man that I was born in the United States of America. But, Lord, we have flaws. And they started early on. 
as innocent as it may have seemed, there were souls that were being hurt and harmed and mistreated. And because we've never properly dealt with it, Lord, it continues to haunt our nation. Lord, forgive us. God, according to your word, we can bind things on earth as they, as they are bound in heaven. And Lord, I bind racism in Jesus' name. And God, we pray that you would release unity upon this world and upon our country. A house divided against itself will not stand. And Lord, I feel like the future of the United States of America hangs in the balance. Lord, we must unite. But that means that we have to have the hard, uncomfortable conversations and open up our hearts and make room for you to rule and reign. God, forgive me for any prejudice that I've had in my life. Any racism, Lord, that I didn't even recognize at the time. Forgive me. Lord, I pray blessings over BJ and Tequila and their family. God, I pray, Lord, that you would let them feel the love and support of their church family. God, we embrace the conversation. And we ask that you would teach us from it, Lord. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Would you let my friends know how much you appreciate them? You can remain standing. I, uh, I know a hard conversation like this today may not reflect every heart in the room. Maybe part of the conversation does. Maybe other parts don't. As I said, my goal today was not to convince you to change your mind. It's to change the way we respond. We have to remember that God's creation hangs in the balance. And if there's anything that I said today, listen, I'm, I, I didn't even tell the staff this week what today's topic was because I wanted them to be innocent in this whole thing. If there's anything that I said today that does not ring true, that you have a problem with, anything, I, I'm a big boy, I can, I can roll with the punches, you can set up a time to talk with me, but come to me with scripture. Let's have this conversation based on the word of God. And I know 
they've opened the door. If you want to have any conversations with them, they're more than welcome to have those conversations also. Thank you for listening to the podcast of DCC. For service times and directions, log on to www.destinycommunitychurch.org. Thanks again for listening.